Number one, who we are. A while back, I played for a coach who was a pinky pointer. Now, I'm not sure if he just wasn't aware that his pinky was doing this, or if he couldn't control his pinky while his forefinger was pointing, or if he just really thoroughly wanted to confuse us. But his gestures were like this, which became excruciatingly confusing when he was divvying up the teams. So he would say, you, 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 and you, <laughs> against you, 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 and you. And we would go, you? are you, you, am I, you, you, you? And he would get frustrated. Dude, I said, you, 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 over there, you, you, over there. And so we would just, okay, you three there, us three here. And then we'd look at him and he'd look at us, what kind of team is that? And we'd look at him like, I don't know. You don't, you can't play if you don't know who you are. Who's on your team, who you're with. Before we go out and live this, Paul says, this is who you are, church. This is who you are. I'm grounding you in your identity. I'm reminding you of who you are. So let's look at verse 12. Therefore, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Despite the fact that all letter long, Paul's been describing and calling and naming them who they are. Before we even get to this putting on, after the taking off, i got to remind you again. Chosen ones. The Greek word eklektoi, or called out. And it's plural. It's the chosens. But chosen ones is a good, a good translation because we got to get this plural sense. Holy ones. Another plural adjective. Consecrated, set apart, saints, and beloved. Loved. The plural perfective participle of the agape verb. Perfectly, unconditionally, unendingly, unswervingly loved the way that your soul was crafted to be loved. Now this perfective case doesn't come through in the English very well. And bear with me, it's kind of preacher speak, Greek grammar stuff. But it's important. It, it means that it's been done completely, but the result is still in effect. So I would say, let's say the window's open. I would say, it's opened. It's opened. It's done. And I can feel the breeze. I know the draft. The result is still in effect. I feel that. That's how I know it's opened. And here, you've been loved to the end, completely done. Christ loved us on the cross. And the love, the, the result is still in effect. It's still who we are. It's still defining us. So this is not just about clean up your act, stop doing that, start doing this, bad, good. This is about put on the clothing that now suits you. It fits. It expresses what's inside. Put it on display. Or as I say, authentically sweating the substance of what's now inside, now that the Spirit has indwelt us. The affections, the values, the identity of who we are. Put it on display. The substance we now sweat is compassion. The substance we now sweat is kindness. The substance you now sweat is meekness. And all this putting on, it's not a you, 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 and you, although it is. It's all y'all. <laughs> See, again, this is a, this, these, are, these are plural imperatives. Plural imperatives. All y'all put this on. It's not just individual characteristics for individual characters, but it's what characterizes a community. 
beloveds together. That's who we are. Number two, what does it look like? Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. It looks like bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and putting on love. In other words, it looks a lot like Jesus. And I know he's always the focal point and the, the answer of every sermon and every scripture, but it's true. How Jesus bore with his disciples. How he reinstated Peter when he denied him. Or as a teacher I like to listen to says, how many horrible sermons for 30 years did he sit through in the synagogue before he said, <clears throat> it's fulfilled in your midst. He bore with them. Or even God bearing with all humanity until the incarnation. Or how about how Jesus puts on compassion and kindness and meekness and forgiveness when he's stripped on the cross for us. It looks like Jesus. And Paul outlines in great detail what it looks like for a community to look like Jesus. And isn't that why we're here? And that's even my prayer, God, that this community, this body, these people, that we would look like Jesus. May it be. So bearing with one another, it's not just this grin and bear it, ignore it and move on, kind of, er, that bothers me, that we kind of think of. The passage here kind of unpacks this. It is much more a repeated norm and process of being able to bring a complaint. Now, that's not just complaining, complaining. It's bringing an offense or a grievance directly to an offender, bringing a complaint, listening, asking for forgiveness, and then offering and then repeat, and reconciling, and repeat. That's bearing with one another over time. Over time, this is forming, shaping, and characterizing how we interact. And as the Lord has forgiven you, is not just a nice theological note, but a nod to our true identity. We are forgiven, and the forgiven forgive. Jesus, as this example, this means the power is what lets us live into our identity as forgiven and as a forgiving community, a resurrection ethic. All right, so what does this look like? In the late 90s, the missions organization I was with, we sent a team into a, a very difficult area of Central Asia where we, we weren't sure there was any Christian presence. It was known for Islamic fundamentalism and ethnic violence. Not an easy assignment for a group of students. And they got there and weren't sure what to do, and they, they started just playing. So they were playing football together, American football, and got in a conflict right away, right away. But because they were Americans and they were sort of strange looking and they, they drew some attention, uh, some folks were watching. And one young man in particular came to watch him, and he had a pretty rough background, and he said, ah, oh, rich Americans, I'm going to rob these folks. So he's watching this interaction, but he's like, ah, oh, they're kind of already squabbling anyway. This would be, I'll just sit and watch for a bit. Don't worry, he doesn't rob them. No, you're concerned. But they start to spat this conflict, and the, young, and the young girl, the young woman, she pulls aside a young man. Now remember, now through the eyes of this, this, this guy who's watching, local guy, he sees it at a distance. He doesn't speak English, so he can't understand even he could hear, but he can't hear. So all he can see is the posture and the gestures of this interaction, and this is what he sees. He sees the young woman express a complaint, and she's rigid. She's rigid because it bothered her. It hurt her. And he's thinking, oh, he's going to put her in her place. She can't do that in public. 
Now in his culture, heads of household or men did discipline, do discipline wives or their kids like that, put them in their place. And in his particular family culture, that's what happened. Instead, he sees the posture of this young man completely different. He's, he's nodding and listening. He's inviting as he listens to her. And then he does something kind of, I don't know what the gesture exactly was, but something like owning and asking or saying sorry or forgiveness. This. And her rigidity melts. Thankfulness. Thank you. He doesn't know the words. He sees it. And she moves in and gives him a hug. Bondedness. Reconciliation. And the guy watching is flabbergasted. And he thinks, what? A weakling about the guy. How could he humble himself in public to a woman? And he goes away. He can't stop thinking. Wait. What if my dad actually asked forgiveness of my mom? What if... I know, I mean, I know she's been hurt. I know she's been abused. I love her so much. I can't even imagine that. Even deeper. Wait. What if I ask forgiveness of my mom or other people that I've hurt? I have no idea how to do that. And a couple days later, he goes back and finds that community. And he says to them, how do you ask forgiveness of each other? They have no idea what he's seen at this point. They're just like, God prepared someone. What was a shockingly radical gesture to this young man is the clothes we wear. Forgiveness. They weren't putting on a show. They were just living out who they are in Christ. And do you see that it's missional? We hear the stories about someone having a dream and finding a missionary, and then they share the gospel individually, and that person comes to Christ, and that does happen. It's happened in our experience. But this is the norm. That story I just told you, that's the norm. It's variations on that theme that we hear and we see all the time. Something like, I saw lived out in a community the love that my heart had always longed for, and I moved into that community and was brought into them, and I found out the source is Jesus. That's the norm. Body life most vividly shows Jesus and the gospel when we are together. Together is where the gospel is expressed. The one another's take on flesh in together. So what about us? How are we doing? Is the substance we're sweating forgiveness and reconciliation? Back to this community in Colossae. They were already a pretty collective Society, very collective. And a little subset of that society living in a very connected way. I mean, we know that they were shared households, a little teeny rural town. It had been a thriving metropolis. By this time, it's just a little rural town between two other big cities. Everybody's in everybody's business. They're sharing their letters with Laodicea, and the house church is there, Heropolis. They're connected. We have a connected community with an incredibly collective society. Here being called by Paul to deeper and richer community relationships. How much more then 
is he calling us? In our ruggedly individualistic, oftenly fast-paced and faceless, increasingly virtual and isolated, lonely culture into a drastically countercultural resurrection body life. Dan White Jr. in his book, Subterranean, Why the Future of the Church is Rootedness, which I think he gets from Colossians, says, we have never been more connected and yet less bonded. Andy Crouch builds on this and he says, you know, we're hyper-connected. We may even be entangled in our connections. But in fact, be the loneliest and most radically individualistic culture to have ever lived on the planet. And let me, let me give you a hint what we need. This is the water we're swimming in. This is the pond that we live in. You know what we need? We need people from another pond. We need the global church. We need to go and learn from them. We need to bring them in or those who are among us from other places and learn from them. Go to the reception after the service and listen to our missionaries, missionaries share about their life in the body of Christ. We need the global church. I went on mission to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth in Kazakhstan. And I realized when I got there that my brothers and sisters lived it better than me. They got it. Life and community, none of this pretending self-sufficiency stuff. We are in each other's lives because we need it. We need to learn from the global church. Lord, would you teach us? Would you teach us to learn and listen to our brothers and sisters from around the world? Amen. All right, could this be? Could this be what Paul is now saying? He doesn't say you need more connections. He doesn't say live more collectively. He doesn't say you need more friends. He says in verse 14, and above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on love. Now, do you feel? He's pulling back the curtain. Curtain being pulled back. All letter long, bond, bonded, hold fast, knit together, connective tissues, whole body, the head, ligaments, sinews. And what are those connective tissues? What are those bonds? Love. Love is what binds us together. He literally says the bond the bond of love or the love bond of completion or maturity. Love is mature bonding. Now, this is pretty obvious. I don't think it's going to be, you know, new or profound to you here in the sanctuary or anybody out there in the commons if I said, you know that, that bonding's about love? I don't think I'm going to get many takers in that debate. No, it's not. But it makes sense. Why is it understandable to every single person made in this world? Because every single person is made in this world in the image of God, who is love, who is loving relationship, who in and of his very nature is triune. We are made in that image. We are renewed into that image from a little earlier in verse 10. And this is exactly what Jesus prays. This is exactly what Jesus prays. In John 17, he pulls back his curtain and says, do you want to know what the Godhead looks like? you want to look like communion in the Godhead looks like? Me communing with the Father and through prayer and the power of the Spirit? Here it is, John 17. I'll say it out loud. And he says, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity, that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Union and communion. And do you taste the mission? It's not stagnant. 
the sent one, sending us that we would send others, and not just out, but into deeper loving relationship with God the Father and each other. This is what God wants for us. This is who God is. This is what Jesus prays for us. This is what Paul is wooing us into. That we would be bonded in belonging in ligaments of love. All right, another picture. I got a call early in the fall from a woman from somewhere out in the Midwest, and she, she had said, I heard about Park Street. I just lost my son. I'm in mourning. Uh, she's a, it's my adopted son. And his biological brother's out there in Boston. He's, he's struggling a bit. He's by himself. Would you reach out to him? And I said, sure, of course I'll reach out to him. Hung up the phone in my mind. I thought, yeah, right, this guy's not going to want to meet with me. A random pastor? Hey, I heard you're hurting. Want to talk? And he did. And he's been an incredible friendship. And as we've grown and connected a little bit here and there, we've been tracking with Auntie Val, who made the call. And she's been praying for us. And she flew out last week. And we're walking around the burial ground here, looking at the memorials to the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And I said, Val, how you doing? How you coping? And she said, it is so And she turns and she points. She says, but these two have helped me hold it together. Now, these are her two friends who flew out from wherever they're from to be here with her. But they hadn't just been with her on the plane trip. They'd been with her through this whole morning journey. And she explained how they prayed with her, how they'd walked with her, how they had been to her, her ligaments of love. And I looked at her, and, and I had this stuff in me, this Colossians stuff that I've been thinking about and praying about. And I, I kind of made this quip, thinking that it would, it would be maybe a little bit cute or funny. And I said, they're like your held togetherers. And she started to cry. She said, yeah. They're my held togetherers. See, I find it interesting that when we say hold it together, hold myself together, get yourself together in English, it has very little, if anything, to do with togetherness. In fact, it usually means fix yourself or pretend that you're okay. Hold it together. Auntie Val gets it. She gets that you can't hold yourself together. Jesus does this. He's the one that holds all things together. But he holds us together in the ligaments of love. And when we're mourning, there's some kind of gift in that because we realize you just can't. And you get to a point where you're like, I don't care who knows or who sees. I'm going to let it go. And in that letting go, you realize and understand that God is doing the holding. And it's not that we have it together, but that together we are being held by him. Blessed are those who mourn. They teach and admonish us. We need them. So who are your held togetherers? Who are you helping hold together? Point number three, how? How does this look? How do we live this resurrection ethic together? All right, there's four, four things here I'm going to list. One is, this, they're verses 15 to 17. They're right out of the passage. 
One is thankfulness as a weapon. Two, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, word. Three is transformative worship. And four is not explicitly listed, but it's woven all the way through and inferred, and that is listen and tell your God stories. Before we outline those, and I know it sounds like one, two, three, four, a nice little formula, I need to say, I know this is not that easy. And I want to recognize that there are probably some of you out there who have really tried to do this, or are really trying right now to do this, and have really been burned, and felt rejected, maybe wounded, hurt, by living in close community with others. And I can understand that. And I want to... I think we're being reminded here throughout the entire book of Colossians, and I want to remind you to take baby steps here, to know that just as our individual maturity in Christ takes a lifetime to take shape, and it's through seasons of suffering and healing, so too does our maturity in bonding. Our bondedness as a community takes a lifetime through seasons to endure, through suffering and healing, to take shape. So let's take heart, and let's take Baby steps. All right, baby step number one, thankfulness as your weapon. Verses 15 to 17, the three thankful trifecta. Verse 15, and be thankful. Verse 16, and with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thankfulness is a weapon. It's a weapon against rugged individualism. Wait, why? Can't I just be thankful by myself? I got my thankfulness journal, important. Thankfulness is a weapon against rugged individualism because rugged individualism so, can so quickly morph into and lead us into idolatry, the greed that is idolatry, the covetousness that is idolatry. Because in, individualizing, in individualism, we are dehumanizing people. We are using people for our own means in worship of ourself and our ends and what we want and what we think we need. But thanksgiving puts God right back on the throne. You are the giver of every gift in my life. And every person in relationship, therefore, is a gift from you for my own growth. And there's a posture of humility, like that young man who listened to the girl who said her offense. When we're acting in thankfulness, there's a posture of humility that says, I do need God, and I need one another. we need one another. Thankfulness is a weapon. It puts God back on the throne. Number two, let the word of God dwell in us richly. Word of God dwelling richly. Now, I see people out there being like, yeah, I got this. I know, don't skip your quiet time. Pastor says, don't skip your quiet time. Get in the word. 20 minutes with the earphones in, on the T, scrolling through. Got it. Got the word. Pump up the podcast. Got it. Check. No. Well, yes, don't stop doing that. <laughs> but no, that's not the whole picture. See, look at dwell, inhabit, take root richly that the word would invade all of our relational spaces. And don't miss this, all y'all. This is a one another. This is another one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in one another through one another. It is a plural imperative command. Every relational space. So of course I'm going to say small groups. That's what I love here. I want you to be involved in a small group. I think that's a great place to start, but it's not all of it either. I hope that your small groups would, be, would also be smaller groups. 
of shepherding, listening, one-on-one. Bigger groups, morphing small groups together. Big group, enjoying each other together. In all of this, the Word of God is saturating our interactions. And how? We're reading our life through the lens of God's Word. We are not just praying. We're praying saturated, word-saturated prayers. We're encouraging each other with God-shaped interactions and stories like Auntie Val. As she tells me about her one another's, her held-togetherers, I hear the word of Colossians back to her and minister to her. And she shares it to me, and I share it with you. Levels of word interactions are dwelling amongst us and entering all relational spaces. This reminds us and it reorients us as it teaches and admonishes us, both teller and listener, that we are his Christ-raised resurrection body. Listening and telling word-shaped interactions, invading every space. Number three, transformational worship. Now this is an extension of letting the, the, God, uh, the word of Christ dwell in us, right? That we're worshiping, we're hearing the words of God and we're singing them back to God. And it's not just singing, we know, right? That it's also, as Paul says here in verse 17, in, in word and deed, everything we do, we're giving back. But it is singing. Three songs here, three zing sing. Sing, sing, sing. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. There's something that goes on when we sing together. We recognize and reflect, we imagine and we thank God for who he is. Yes, we express what we're feeling, and that's sometimes it's wonderful to say, that's expressed exactly how I'm feeling, that's worship. But also, even when we don't feel it, we're recognizing that God is true, and we're being transformed through it together. So when we sing, great is thy faithfulness, I can't help but think, and sometimes tears come to my eyes, though I cry quite easily, you've probably noticed, of the times in Kazakhstan when we sat there paralyzed, praying. God, we don't know what's, how to do this. We don't have the money for this project, and God provides. We don't know how to see this person that we've been loving on freed from this thing. We can't do it, and God does something. The support of our local staff, this ministry program, just us being sustained and thriving, and God does it. And that's going through my mind as I'm think, singing that one phrase, great is thy faithfulness. All, your hand, all that I've needed, your hand is provided. And guess what? Yours is going through your mind too, and your mind too, and your mind too, and all y'all. And there's corporate worship. And there's corporate worship. Something happens that we are bonded to get together as we understand who Jesus is singing those God-shaped songs. All right, number four. I've already said it. It's about telling stories, but it's also about listening to stories. And I want to I make sure we say listening. Because I don't think it's possible to teach and admonish, at least not well, if we don't learn to listen well first. Now, admonish doesn't just mean give advice. That's how we take it. That's how we do it. It's counseling, exhorting. And every great counselor is a great listener. This is a, a quote from Randy Reese in his book. It's a bit of a paraphrase, but he says, maybe there's no greater gift in the entire world than we could give others in this fast-paced and impersonal and increasingly virtual culture than to take the time to listen to each other's stories. It communicates belonging. We belong together. I value you. Your story has shaped you. I need to hear that. It communicates belief. 
As you look back on your story and as you tell your story, you're going to say, somebody believed in me. And you're going to be communicating that. And the person listening is believing in you as they listen. Value and honor. And here's the thing. It is all incarnational. To listen to someone is to give up your time, maybe somewhere else that you could be, but you're there with them. You're sacrificing to be present. Maybe your own desires to be approved or impressed. Your need to have your ideas heard. Your advice, your time. All to take on flesh and tabernacle with someone else and to bring them life. Is that not the incarnation? Is that not what Jesus did for us? Body life takes time for listening to one another's stories. And I know nobody likes assignments in a sermon. But can I just nudge one your way? Would you take time, maybe, grab somebody that you know but maybe not that well or someone you don't know at all and say, hey, I'd like to hear your story. Could be the five-minute version in the reception hall. Could be a walk you take together. Could be coffee. But I want to encourage you to listen. I want to encourage us to be that body. When I see all these tourists coming through in floods and they stop right at that corner, and they plug the app on the, on, the, on the, what is it, the Freedom Trail app or website, and they're listening to the history of the church. I had this conversation with them in my head. I'm yet to do it yet. <laughs> Want to do it. You can pray for me. But I had this conversation with them in my head when I walk up and I go, yeah, tall, tall steeple. Yeah, old, old church. Yeah, rich, rich history. And then I go, you want to know a secret? It's alive. There are people in there who love each other and belong to one another. You ought to come. You ought to come on Saturday morning and see how we reach out to our homeless neighbors. You ought to come on Tuesday or Wednesday when our young people gather, sometimes playing cornhole and hanging out, and then go inside and study the Bible and pray for each other. You ought to come on Sunday and celebrate what God does in our life for real. Pray for me. I usually just say, cool church, you should go. <laughs> I'm getting there. Baby steps. Baby steps. We listen to each other's stories. We reach out in mission because we are his. It's who we are. It's the clothes we're wearing. Psalm 66 says it all so well. The psalmist tells the story of God to God's people. Verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God. I'll tell you what he's done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and his praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he's not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. How is God loved the psalmist? He listened and attended to him. How has God loved us? He listens and attends to us. How are we loving one another? In the power of the Spirit, we are listening and attending to one another. In thankfulness, as the word dwells in us and overflows through us in transformative worship. Lord, may it be amongst us. Jesus, you are the head. Bond us together in belonging and ligaments of love through the power of your spirit so we would be nourished as your body. Please, Lord, would you continue to shape us in this way. 
Though it will take seasons of suffering, pain and healing, reconciliation and forgiveness and endurance, it all comes from you. It's all for you. We long to live into and become who we already are as yours, your beautifully bonded body. Amen.